Good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, welcome, Smyrna Campus. We love you guys. Glad you're there. And everybody connecting with us online. We wanted to give you that little heads up, that little warning ahead of time about next Sunday and uh, being the time we, we change the clock. So don't forget that. As we begin today, we're going to continue our series we've been doing on Breaking Bad Habits. Uh, and today we're talking about one that sounds like kind of an ancient thing, but I'm going to Help us see how it applies to us today. But before we get there, I want us to continue praying uh, for the Ukraine uh, and the people that are involved in the conflict and the, and the attacks on their country there. Uh, this past week, Sue Ann and I were able to be at a pastors and wives conference, and we were able to connect with our good friend, another pastor uh, that has served as a missionary to the Ukraine still has many connections there. His name is Glenn Elliott. And so he's getting firsthand accounts from the people on the ground there. And uh, I've got to tell you, it's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. But it's also so inspirational what some of those people are doing and some of the countries around them are doing to help them. Uh, totally unprovoked attacks. Uh, and uh, the Russian uh, media is trying to put every spin on it they can for their people to try to make it look like this is something good that they had to do and they had no choice. And some of the Russian uh, population is buying into the propaganda, but many of them are not, and they're protesting against this war, and they're being arrested, and they were cracking down on them as they try to protest it. And uh, it's not getting better. Uh, it's getting worse. Uh, a lot of people suffering. A lot of people have had to, to leave their homes and, and go to countries surrounding there. And I just want us to keep praying for these people. Uh, we're so blessed to, to live where we live and have the freedoms and safety that we enjoy. I know it's not perfect. I know we have problems, but compared to what they're going through right now, we're so blessed. So let's all just join together, Smyrna Campus, all of us, everybody online. Let's all join together right now and lift up uh, Ukraine and, and everybody that's connected to that. Uh, and the Ukrainian people, we have many of them here in the U.S. that are concerned about family and friends back home and what's happening with them. Let's all pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, realizing that you are our source. You are our hope. You are the one who sits on the throne. And Father, we pray. We pray for those in Ukraine and in the surrounding areas and those here at home that are concerned about their family and friends there, I pray that you would comfort as only you are able, that you would strengthen their resolve, that you would, Father, help them be able to, to bear up under the, the terrible things that they're having to face right now. I thank you for those who have a love for you and are trying to honor you and seek you through all of this. And I pray that you would, you would make your presence known to them in a real way as never before as you provide for them everything they need. Father, I just pray for a turnaround in this, in this war, that there could be a, a change that's made that would lead to peace, a peace that honors you. And Father, we just thank you for your love for them and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're talking about idolatry today. We've been looking at different habits each week, and uh, you think idolatry, that sounds like so ancient, such an old school thing, that it wouldn't apply to us today. But sadly, it, it does. Uh, you may remember this guy, uh, I told the story before, his name was Bill, and when he died, he had in his will that he set aside a chunk of money, $50,000 for his funeral. He really wanted an elaborate 
funeral. And so they, he died, they had the funeral, and uh, as people were leaving, the last people were leaving, uh, his wife turned to her best friend. His wife's name was Lynn. She turned to her friend, Sue. She said, I think, I think Bill would have been pleased with the service. And Lynn said, yeah, I, I think he would have been. But then her friend leaned in close and whispered, how much did this really cost? And she said, the whole thing, the whole $50,000. She said, well, it was nice, but I don't think it was that nice. She said, well, I'll break it down for you. Here, here's how it went. The funeral itself was $6,500. I donated $500 to the church. The visitation, food, and drinks were another $500, and the rest went to the memorial stone. Well, her friend did the math really fast and said, $42,500 for a memorial stone? How big is it? She said, two and a half carats. You see, we can make idols out of anything, can't we? Let's take something like a diamond, and we, uh, even though they're not really that rare, we, you know, the mystique around it, the way they marketed it, uh, and, and it was early on harder to get them out of the ground and everything, and it was risky for people, and a lot of bad things were done to get the diamonds, but they're plentiful. There's plenty of diamonds out there, but because they're marketed the way they are, they're like rare, beautiful stones that we pay so much money for, right? You can... You could start putting a higher value on things sometimes than you should. And that's really what it comes down to when we talk about idolatry. Uh, someone uh, define an idol this way. Anything in the created order that we exchange for the creator. Anything in the created order that we exchange for the creator himself. Tim Keller defined an idol this way. Anything more important to you than God anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, that's an idol. So it doesn't have to be the graven images, the, the, the golden calf or, or any of those things that we think about in ancient idolatry. It can be very modern day things that are taking the place of God in our lives, taking that place that only God should have in our hearts, and our minds. Paul spoke to this in Romans 1, 25. He said, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. He said, what they did is they made a choice to push the creator out of that top spot in their lives and their devotion, and they replaced him on that spot, on the throne of their lives, with other things that he created. But he, they made those things higher than God to them. They were more important. They were more driven in those areas than in their relationship with God. It all goes back to as God was establishing his covenant with his people after he brought them out of slavery in Egypt and he was taking them to go into the promised land and, and establish themselves there as the people of God in the promised land. He gave them the law, the old covenant we call it today. It wasn't old for them. It was brand new for them. But now as we look back, we refer to it as the old covenant. We read about it. We have a record of it in the Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible, uh, are, are the first five books or books of law where that establishment of, of those covenant things are, are articulated in such a way that the people had no question about what God was wanting for them as far as the law was concerned. In Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, he said this, And God spoke all these words, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Some translations say besides me. They were coming out of Egypt, a place where idol worship was rampant. Not just in Egypt, but in the surrounding countries as well. Idol worship was the norm. They had statues of idols everywhere. And so the tendency would be, because they spent hundreds of years in Egypt, is the generations now would be used to that culture, to that way of thinking. That, that, there, are, that there are idols that you need to appease. There are idols that you need to keep happy so that you can have blessings in your life. There, there are idols that have control over certain... And they had an idol for all different things, right? There, was, there were these gods of these different areas of life that they would have to always make sure they were pleasing all the time. And so they would make decisions based on, would this be pleasing to that idol or would it make that idol angry for us to do that? And God was preparing them, all right, when you get into the land I'm giving you, you're going to be representing me. And here's what you need to know if you're going to represent me. I accept no other place in your life but first. That's the only position I will have. I won't take second chair, second fiddle to anything else in your life or you're not really worshiping me. You're not really honoring me if I don't have that first place in your life. And you see, that's where the battle comes in because other things are, are trying to get us to come after them. Other people, other activities, other things are trying to draw us after them. And it's always this constant battle. Are we going to put God first or are we going to let these other things come first? But if we choose not to put God first, he is not going to be there then because that's the only place he will take. His first place. But the church over the years, and especially the church in America, I think, has tried to play this game where we segmentize our lives into these different segments of life, right? Where we have our work life and we have our, our, our sports or activities life, right? And we have our, our, our entertainment life and then we have our spiritual life. It's a, different, it's a segment of our lives and we want to keep it there like a pie and it's, it's one slice of the pie that we want to always have there as our spiritual life. But we, God doesn't want to be a piece of the pie. He wants to be the whole pie. He wants to be over all of that. No segment of our lives should come out from under his lordship, his rule over us. And if he can't have that, if he can't have it all, he will not be our God at all. That's the kind of God he is. And you might think that sounds cruel or that sounds awfully demanding, but God wants that place because he knows he created us and he will bless us in that place when we put him in that place. That's where the greatest life is. That's where the best of life is, is when we give God that place of being God over everything in our lives. So let's think about modern-day idols. I, I'm convinced that the pandemic exposed a lot of our idols, right? When, when we had to change all of our lives because of the pandemic, especially when it first started, we had to shut everything down, right? And we had to, we, we were going to flatten the curve in how many days? How many 14 days have we done now, right? 
We're going to flatten that curve. So, so we started out 14 days to flatten the curve. Bam, we shut everything down. And I think everybody at first handled that okay. But then they said, no, we got extended a little longer. And then we got extended. Then we started recognizing there's some things in our lives that we maybe placed higher value on in some ways than we did God. And people got angry at God and they got angry at their churches and they left church in droves and got mad at their churches in droves and they, they, they didn't like their pastor anymore. They didn't like their church anymore. They didn't like anything they were doing anymore, right? It, it just, we began to see some different idols. One of those idols, I think, was our independence. Now, independence is a beautiful thing and I love it. But Christ followers are not called to be totally independent. In fact, we're called to be totally dependent on him. And when we couldn't have our freedom to move around and do everything we were used to doing, we even got angry at God because of that. And we didn't take that time necessarily to draw closer to God. We let it take us further away from God. It wasn't just our independence. There were so many things that during the pandemic, academics get elevated a lot in our culture, right? Uh, especially people coming from other countries, other uh, places will come here to get their education because in their country to come to America and get this degree and then get that advanced degree. That's what life is all about. And so they elevate that. And sometimes we do it ourselves. Uh, those that are native to America, we do it ourselves where that's what life's all about. It's getting that higher degree and the next degree and the next degree. And it's all about the academics and the academic achievement. And then we had to shut down the schools, right? For a little while. And we got so mad about that. Maybe it wasn't academics for you. Maybe it was money. Boy, did the pandemic affect people financially? Yeah. You began to really see how important that was to you, your job and your finances and how that might come before God. And many people decided, well, I've got to be really careful here during the pandemic, so I'm not going to give what I used to give to the church anymore just as a safety precaution, so make sure I can get through the pandemic here. Now, thankfully, here at Lakeshore, many churches, our offering stayed strong. They went down at first, but then they came back up as people began to say, all right, we need to keep God first, and we need to still support and honor the church like we need to honor God through his church. And our, our offerings have stayed pretty strong through the whole thing, and I'm thankful for that, very grateful for that. But many people, that was one of the first things they did was cut back on their generosity with the church. It may have been something else. It may not have been the money. Uh, another idol that we've created in our country, uh, some other countries have it too, but here in America it's really strong, is sports. And what happened during the first part of the pandemic? What happened to the sports? Boom, shut down. Had to shut down all of that too. Now, we didn't keep it shut down as much as some of the other things, but we had it shut down for a while. Uh, I loved how, if you watched the Super Bowl this year, how the celebrities and, and big shots in the boxes didn't have any mask on. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah, it's okay for them, but not for the peons, right? Um, here's the thing. We, we grieved that more than we did for some people, the church, not being able to meet. We don't have our sports. We can't watch it on television. We can't have the same experience. We can't go to the games, right? For some people, that's an idol. It's ahead of God. You know how I know that? Because on Sundays when the Titans play at noon, 
There's a whole bunch of people that don't show up for church. Even though we've got a 9 o'clock service and you could still get there. You don't have to do the tailgate part ahead of time. But no, that's important. That's more important than being at church. Right? You think we might get some idols there in the way? We spend money for season tickets and travel and eating and all of that to go to sporting events where we say we can't afford to be generous at the church. Where, where's the number one thing in your life? It's not just sports. It's other entertainment, too. We spend all kinds of money for concerts and to be entertained at different things all the time. And, but we say we can't be generous at church. So where's the real priority? What's the real thing that's on the heart, the throne of our hearts? It may not be sports. It could be travel, entertainment. Like I said, politics became even more an idol for people. That's been happening for a long time, even in the church, where it's all about defending this party or that party or this candidate or that candidate. And we overlook all of their flaws and their faults because they're our candidate or they're in our party, right? We act like they can do no wrong. And the world will be lost if this person gets elected or this person gets elected, right? As if God is not over even all of that. That's the way we approach it. So what's the real thing on our hearts then? Who has that place of ruling in our hearts? At our conference we were at, one of the things that we, we looked at some studies on is how non-Christians, when they talk about the church in a negative way, the number one thing they say most negative about the church is how we let politics run our lives instead of God, instead of Christ that we're more passionate about politics than we are about Jesus. What might be the idol there? Who might be the idol there in our lives? It could be other things. I mean, the list could go on and on. Even religion could be an idol. I'm not talking about honoring God. I'm talking about religion. I don't know how many people left church. Uh, say, they're saying now on average at least a third of people left church and aren't coming back during the pandemic. It, it started, though, before the pandemic, people leaving church in bigger numbers than ever before. You know why? Because they didn't get their way. They did something or made a decision or made a change that they didn't like, and so they left. Now, if that's the case... There might be an idol there that you're not recognizing. It might be self. You see, all of these things come back to self on the throne instead of God on the throne. All of these things come back to my preferences, what I want, my emotions, my feelings, my beliefs. I want to have that place on the throne of my life. I don't want God to have it. I want to keep it, at least part of it. But God says, have no other gods before me in any part of your life at all. Maybe especially in our church life, right? It all comes down to self. And the pandemic exposed all these idols, I think, in a greater way. I think they were already there, but I think they got exposed more as we had all of these freedoms taken away and all these changes that had to be made and all, all the struggles we had to go through. I think it really revealed what is on the throne who is on the throne of our lives idolatry 
you need to understand is a major theme in the Bible. It's huge. More than 50 of the laws in the first five books of the law deal with idolatry in some way. Not just the Ten Commandments, but, but 50 of the laws. It was one of only four sins under the Old Covenant that warranted the death penalty. Do you understand that? God so hates idolatry that he attached the death penalty to idol worship under the Old Covenant. This is a serious thing with God. And far too few churches and too few pastors ever challenge us on the idols in our lives because we want to keep people happy and coming and giving, right? And so we're not, we're, we're not willing to get people upset because when you expose idols, people don't like that very much. They want to think that how, we all like to think, don't we, that how we're living our lives is great, it's perfect, it's all right, we don't need to change anything. We, we like to hear that. Someone was telling me before the service that, that, that their brother, I'm not going to call any names, Matt, said that every, <laughs> every sermon in this series felt like I was directing it directly at him. And I said, well, yeah, but, yeah I was. Yeah. But not just him, right? Is it me too? I, I look in the mirror, it's addressing me too. I can have idols that get in the way of allowing God to have that place, that only place he wants in my life. And so today I want us to talk about three key steps we need to take to make sure we're not guilty of something that God just hates and that he, he never wants to allow us to think it's okay for anyone or anything else to be in the place that he needs to be in in our lives. The first step is this, make Jesus Lord of your life. Make Jesus Lord of your life. In Acts chapter 2, we have that recording of the, the preaching of the gospel for the first time and, and the people's response to the preaching of the gospel. And, and in Acts 2, verse 36, after Peter has preached that first sermon, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both, and he uses two words there, both Lord and what? Messiah. They love the Messiah part. Messiah means deliverer, savior, one who, who delivers us from something that, that has oppressed us or, or, or held us away from the blessings of God. And, and so Messiah is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And especially coming from a Jewish heritage, as all those people there in the audience that day were, were Jews that had gathered. And to hear that a Messiah, their Messiah had come, they had prayed for him and longed for him all of those years. And now he's here, but he didn't just call him Messiah. What else did he call? Lord. Lord means ruler of all, of everything. He says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. So the person we nailed to the cross is actually our what? Our Lord, our ruler. Now that would frighten us, it should frighten us, except for the fact that we know he did it because of his love for us, right? But we're still guilty of taking the one who is Lord of all and nailing him to a cross. Verse 37, here's the response of the people. It's the response we need to have too. When the people heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. It means they were convicted of their sin. They realized what they'd done was wrong, that their sin was, was having to be paid for by their Lord. Oh, hanging on the cross, they, they crucified their Lord and their Messiah. So 
they asked Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That question is a key question. They're asking, how can we make things right with God again after we've done this? Isn't that the key question? How, how can we get back into a right relationship with God after we nailed our Lord and Messiah to the cross? Well, Peter replied in verse 38, here's what you need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we know he wasn't just talking to them by the next verse. This promise, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So there's a process when you recognize, when you hear the gospel and you know, you believe that it's true and you know you need to do something to make things right with God. He says, here's the process. It starts with repentance. You humble yourself before God. You confess your sin and you turn from your sin. That's repentance. Then he asks us to do something that seems strange to some people. Be baptized. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Because that's the key, right? We want to make things right with God. The sin gets in the way. We got to get rid of the sin. He says, well, here's how you do it. Because you believe, the next steps are to repent and then to be baptized. I've studied baptism a lot because so many people teach different things about baptism, and I spent a lot of time on it. And I've come to this conclusion, I believe the scripture backs this up, that one of the reasons God commands baptism is because it shows total submission to Him. There's no other reason to let somebody dunk you under the water in the name of Jesus except to submit to Him as the Lord of your life. Why else would you do that? makes no sense you could say i love jesus you could pray the prayer you could do all that why would he want us to be baptized because you have to give yourself over completely to that it's a decision you have to make that you're going to submit to his authority even even if you don't understand why it's because he said so right how many of your parents said this and you said you're never going to say it but you say it to your kids because i said so yeah, I saw a lot of hands going up. I didn't ask for it, but that's, yeah. At home, maybe you raised your hand, right? Here's the deal. You know why you say that? Because parents are in a position of authority over their children. That's why. And if they really have authority, then when they say do this, and you're coming under their authority, what do you do? You do it. And if you don't do it, you are rebelling against their authority, Right? So when it comes to baptism, it's a decision you make to surrender to his authority over you. Where you're saying, I will let you be in charge, God. I'm not going to be in that place in my life anymore. I'm surrendering that position now. I'm getting myself off the throne. I'm going to put you there. So I'm going to do what you say, even if I don't understand why, even if I think I don't want to get my hair messed up or, or I don't like to do that in front of other people, I will do it because God commands me in his word to do it. And he's both, not just Messiah, what else is he? Lord. He's ruler. So I'll do it for that reason. That reason alone. It goes on to say this. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message, right? That word translated accepted his message means they received it, right? 
They took it into their hearts and their minds. They, they, they were willing then to act on what they had heard and believed. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. So if you accept the message of the gospel, what are you willing to do in response? Be obedient to the commands. One of those starts with repenting and being baptized. If you're not willing to do that, you haven't submitted to the lordship of Jesus. You're still trying to run it yourself. You're still trying to decide what you do or don't have to do in response to him if you're not willing to do those things because those are the specific things he commands us to do. So is he Lord or not? Have you decided he's going to rule or not? Because if he is, then you do what he's telling you to do. That's where it starts. That's not the end of it. Listen to the rest of it, okay? 3,000 added to the number, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they understood that when they made Jesus Lord of their lives, there were some things they needed to be devoted to in their lives because of their coming under the lordship of Jesus. Now they're devoted to these four things. The apostles' teaching, that's the Bible, that's scripture. That's where we have it today. And so we're devoted to the teaching of God's word. They were devoted to the fellowship. And we think of fellowship like eating together, and that's a way, a part of fellowship. But for, that, for them, that word fellowship didn't mean we just have a fellowship meal on Wednesday nights. That's not what fellowship was. That word fellowship meant the sharing of life with each other. You share your life, you do life together. That's fellowship. God's people have a bond where we do life together. We don't just show up on Sunday and then leave and we say now we've worshiped God because we know there's more to the fellowship than that. It, it applies to all of life and how we do life. They devoted themselves to, to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. The term they used was the breaking of bread. It was coming around the Lord's table to remember him the way he asked to be remembered. And, and it doesn't specifically say, well, you have to do this every week or you're going to go to hell. But the pattern of the early church was they did this every time they gathered on the Lord's Day. And so we follow that pattern here at Lakeshore. We want to make that a regular thing, a consistent thing in our lives because He's Lord, and he asked us to remember him that way. So why wouldn't we do that? It's his day. And to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. You see, to be in that relationship and to keep that relationship healthy, prayer has to be a vital part of that relationship. That's how God, that's how we speak to God, but, but it's also how God speaks to us is in prayer. And the prompting of his spirit as we read his word and as we pray, the spirit is prompting and leading and guiding us. His Holy Spirit is directing our lives when we allow ourselves to maintain that contact with him through prayer. You see, if he's Lord, we'll be devoted to the things he said we need to be devoted to. They won't be secondary things. They'll be primary things in our lives. But if he's not Lord, you can let those things slide. If you're still going to be in that place in your life, don't worry about it. But just understand God's not there because he'll only be in that place in your life. That's the only place he'll take. He won't accept second or third or fourth to anything else ever. So if you want to have him watching over you and caring for you and blessing you, then you've got to put him in the place, the only place he's willing to have in your life 
which is first place. So that leads to the second thing very quickly, and that is we have to learn then to set boundaries so that we don't let other things become idols in our lives. If we commit to letting God have that place, then we have to be careful. We've got to protect that. And one of the best ways to protect that is to put boundaries around it. I just did a wedding yesterday, and I love doing weddings. But here's what I found a lot, not for this wedding, but in our culture today, what happens a lot is brides especially will pour so much money and effort and energy and time into the ceremony and very little time into the vows and what they mean. It's all about the show and the presentation and the beautiful service. It's very little about honoring God in the vows and setting the boundaries and keeping those to bless their relationship with God. I was able to go through premarital counseling with this couple and they, they want to honor God, and I'm thankful for that. But not every couple takes the time or makes the investment in those things because those things, if you're a Christ follower, are much more important than the actual ceremony itself. Sue Ann and I, I showed you the picture last week. <laughs> Got married in the 70s, and we did a little small wedding in a house, in her, in her parents' house. There was the parsonage at our church, and, and we did a little wedding there with just our families there, immediate families. It was no big elaborate ceremony, and we didn't spend a lot of money, mainly because we didn't have any money, and our families didn't have a lot of money. We've been married over 45 years now. All right, I, thank you, but here's the thing. It had nothing to do with the ceremony that made that marriage last. It had everything to do that when we entered into that marriage, we were very young. We were just 12, but in Georgia, that's okay. <laughs> Didn't even have to get parents' permission in Georgia. We just, no, I'm just kidding. We were a little older than that. But we were young. But here's the thing. We both committed to have boundaries that would protect the covenant that we were entering into before God and before others. And we took that seriously. And, and we, we have kept those boundaries there to protect it the whole time. It doesn't mean we've been perfect. It doesn't mean we, we, we've always done everything exactly right. I don't want you to get that impression. It means that there were boundaries that we said we are not crossing those boundaries. When it comes to your relationship with God, you need to understand that's a covenant relationship too. In the Bible, the best illustration of Christ and the church is the church is the bride of Christ. So if we're entering into that union with him as a part of his church. That's a covenant relationship. And we should put boundaries and protections around it to keep it intact, to make it what it ought to be so that we're not unfaithful to the groom, Jesus, in this relationship. We honor the marriage, the covenant that we're entering into with him in such a way that we protect that relationship. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, beginning with verse 9. He says this, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. 
Here's the key. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. He says, because God, I want this covenant relationship with you. I take great delight in your teachings and the boundaries you tell me to have. I welcome them. I rejoice in them. I value those boundaries because I know that's what keeps the relationship intact like it needs to be. But so many Christians today look at the boundaries God sets and says, eh, I love God, but I want to do it this way instead. I know he says not to be sexually active till marriage, but everybody else is. We can live together. We don't have to be married. It's all right. We don't have to honor the gender that he created us with. We'll just decide whatever gender we want to be. We, we don't have to, to be generous. We, we can only be generous when we decide to be generous people. We don't have to actually be involved in the church. We can just show up when it's convenient for us. You see how we, we say we love God, we're going to make him first, but we, we get outside all the boundaries that God set. And when you get outside the boundaries, the covenant is broken. It's not healthy. Think about that in a marriage. If either Sue Ann or I had stepped outside the boundaries of that covenant, do you think it might have hurt our marriage a little bit? And some of you have experienced that, and it's painful. Now, I know God's grace is there, and he can forgive, but would it hurt the covenant? Yes. The covenant would be broken. And that's a painful thing. And it takes a whole lot to heal that and restore that. It's always better not to break it to start with, not to get outside the boundaries to begin with. And the same thing is true in our covenant relationship with God. It's always better not to get outside the boundaries. But when we do, we rely on the grace and the forgiveness of God. It's there for us. But then we have to rebuild that relationship like you would have to in a marriage. We have to get back to where we need to be, right? And God can heal and restore, and he wants to do that. But the pain that's caused was unnecessary. We didn't have to cause that pain if we just stayed inside the boundaries that God set. God's word establishes healthy boundaries. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he says, All scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word gives us the teachings, the boundaries, the guidelines, the directions from God. It's out of his love that he says, Here are the boundaries I want you to live here, because that's where you'll have everything you need for the good life I want you to live. That's where the blessings are inside the boundaries that I've set. And if he's really Lord, who gets to set the boundaries? He does, not us. He gets to set the boundaries, not us. Now, I'm thankful for the grace of God. If you're living here in this world right now, outside of the boundaries of God, understand this. God doesn't hate you, and he's not mad at you. I want you to understand, neither is the church. I saw a meme, somebody posted, you know, if you're, if you're having sex outside of marriage, come to church anyway. You know, if you're doing this or doing that, come to church. If you're addicted to drugs, come to church. That's true. You're welcome here. You still need to be here. You need to come and learn and grow because here's the thing. God so loves us that even when we're outside the boundaries, he's still calling, pursuing us to come back inside the boundaries again because he can give healing and restoration and blessing again if you come back within the covenant that he wants to have with you. And that leads to the last thing. That is, if we're going to protect our covenant with God, we've got to make some hard choices. I want to finish this very quickly, just quickly, some hard choices we have to make. 
It's based on something Jesus said in Matthew 5. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? We've gone to that a lot. Such great teaching there. In Matthew 5, verse 29 and 30, he says this. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So there's a principle here. Jesus is not trying to get us to gouge out eyes and cut off hands. That's not what he's trying to do. Wouldn't that be gross? You ever heard him say, you know, be careful, you poke your eye out? I've talked about this before. You cannot poke your eye out. You can poke it in. You have to get in there and get behind it and gouge it out, right? What he's saying is anything that keeps Jesus from being on the throne is something that if you can't do it on your own, here's what you have to do. You just have to get rid of it completely. Anything that takes that place away from Jesus is something you just need to get out of your life. If there's no way to get it under control, no way to get it back where it needs to be, get it down below the lordship of God. Let me give you an example. You got some friends right now that in order for you to fit in with and hang out with, you're crossing the boundaries to be in that friend group. Maybe you need a new friend group. Maybe you need to gouge that out, cut that off. That's a last resort because you could have friends that are not Christians. We want you to have friends that are not Christians. But if they're influencing you outside of the boundaries, to go outside the boundaries, maybe there's a change that needs to be made in the friend group. If you're struggling with alcohol abuse, maybe you shouldn't hang out with the guys at the bar that are also drinking and encouraging you to drink, right? That's just an easy example. There's, there's plenty of those, right? If they're shooting up drugs when you go over to their house, maybe that's not where you need to be hanging out if you're having a drug problem, right? You see what I'm saying? There are friends that are controlling your decisions that are not allowing God to rule. And maybe you need to change friends. It may be something like with sports. You've let it become so controlling in your life that you may even be hurting your family financially to be at all the games and buy the season tickets and do all the tailgating and you spend all the money for the, for the, the gear and all of that. And, and your family's not having their needs met like they need to. And your church is not getting your generosity at all. Maybe something needs to change. Maybe you need to not be super fan anymore. Here's what I want you to know. The team will survive without you. You understand that? I don't care who the team is. They can survive without you, and they'll go on. They just want this from you. That's what they want. But God wants your heart. God wants your heart. It may, it may be other things, right? Some parents are letting children be their idol. They're letting their children be their idol. They'll do anything and everything for their kids, even if it takes them outside the boundaries that God sets in his word. And they'll make sacrifices and investments for things for their kids when what they need to be investing in more than anything else for their children is their spiritual development. And they're investing so little in their spiritual development. They're investing in their sports and their education and their music and all that, but so little effort's being made in the development of their relationship with God. None of those things are evil unless they take the place of God. Understand me, I'm not saying any of those things are evil. 
They can be good. They can be a fun part of your life as long as they come under the lordship of Jesus in your life. And it can be you've let your religious preferences become your idol. And so if the church makes any changes you don't like, you just go somewhere else. You just say, I, I don't want to be, it's not what, like it used to be. I hear that so much as a pastor and every other pastor I talk to, they hear that from their members all the time. It's not like it used to be. Thank God. It's not like it used to be. You know why? Because churches that are still doing it like it used to be are dying by the hundreds every month in America. Thank God it's not like it used to be, that there are churches willing to step out and do some different things to reach lost people because the number one job of the church is to seek and save the lost, not to keep everybody happy that's already there. You understand that? Now, I'm not saying that just for me, but I am saying it for me too. I want you to know that. I love this church, and we got so many great people here who have stayed loyal and committed through. We've made so many changes over the years. I've been here over, it'll be 31 years today that I've served as pastor here, right? And you know what that gets me? Nothing. <laughs> but what I hope it gets me is you're understanding that, you know what? I made changes as a leader that I wasn't even comfortable with, but I knew they needed to happen to reach lost people. And I've been able to baptize well over 1,200 people in, in that time here at Lakeshore into Christ. And not just me, other people have been baptizing too, so that's just the ones I baptized. You see, that's what matters. If Jesus is Lord, that's what matters more than anything else whether you like the music or the temperature or, or the program or whatever it is, it's not the most important thing if Jesus is Lord. The most important thing is we reach the people out there who don't know Jesus yet, who need him so badly more than anything else. That's what matters most. And so I want to ask you to recommit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. Here's what it looks like in 1 John 5, and I'll close with this, beginning with verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he claims to be, because if he is, he is Lord of all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that, that as you call us, to surrender to your lordship, we can do so knowing how much you love us and want only what's best for us. If there's somebody today who's ready to take that step to make Jesus Lord of their lives, I just pray they would be willing to really surrender and come in repentance and obedience and baptism to, to put Jesus on the throne. Father, I pray that 
that those of us who've already started that process and we've been baptized into Christ, that we would re-examine and make sure we put those boundaries in place in our relationship with you and that covenant we made with you, that you're still going to be Lord of every part of our lives because that's where we are closest to you and that's where we have the greatest blessing. Father, I thank you that you love us like you do. In Jesus' name, amen.